Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Hey, last week, Pastor Justin started a new series. It's the most wonderful time, and today we are continuing on with that series. If you've got your Bible, if you've got our FC app, um, if you haven't downloaded our FC app, go ahead and do that now. Uh, You can follow the sermon notes, you can get events, you can give, uh, you can sign up for connect groups, you can do a bunch of different things through our FC app. And so uh, go ahead and download that now. Um, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. So, um, but uh, if you have the app, you can open that up to the uh, sermon notes section. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 2, it says this. says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. This morning, we are going on with a series. It's the most wonderful time to worship. It's the most wonderful time to worship. I want to make a distinction here um, because if you grew up in church, then the words praise and worship were probably synonymous. Uh, They they went together like Batman and Robin, uh, peanut butter and jelly, as much as this one hurts, Spencer Sanders and Interceptions, they go together uh, really well um, together. I know, I'm sad. It's all right. I'm still bitter. Um, But I want to make a distinction because they're two separate things, all right? Praise and worship are two separate things. When we look in the Bible and we, we see the word praise, Uh, It paints this picture uh, of putting a spotlight on something, of drawing attention to something, of boasting about something, celebrating something. And so praise is exuberant, it's loud, it's boastful, but it's in in this context, it's boastful uh, towards God. And worship, on the other hand, has a much more um, reverent feel, a much more um, somber feel, and and it's the idea that you are um, on your knees, let's see if I can do this without making the old man groan, um, that you are on your knees and bowing down before someone in authority or in submission. And um, it's that picture of, you think of like ancient times where they're bowing before a king, right? Because they're paying respects. And so we are, are bowing down before God, that we are, are living a life, that our heart is in this attitude of worship, which means that we are constantly um, on our face before God. And not necessarily in the, in the literal sense, but that no matter where we are, that our heart and our attitude and our mindset is one of putting God above us, right? That we are at the feet of Jesus. Um, And so I wanted to make that distinction um, as we're getting into this this, uh, sermon today. Uh, It's the most wonderful time to worship. If we look in Romans chapter 12, verses 1, it kind of gives the the definition of that. It says, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. So we are 
giving our lives to God, a living and holy sacrifice, right? That we're alive, that we're moving, but our life is holy, it's set apart. And when he looks at it, he sees our life as acceptable. So we're reading this text here in Matthew chapter 2, and you've got these three kings that are wanting to go worship Jesus. They're wanting to go um, bow down before him. And when you read this verse, you probably get the idea of like the classic nativity scene, right? We've got Mary, and she's just like this, and Jesus is in the manger, and Joseph is like this, and you've got a camel, and you've got the wise men. If you're fancy, you've got like an angel in the star, If you don't care what the Bible says, there's a drummer boy in the corner, and it's not in the Bible, all right? But um, you get the picture of like this nativity scene. But that that scene is a little bit misleading because we read a few verses later in Matthew chapter 2 that the wise men actually came to visit Jesus in a home, not at the manger, right? These wise men uh, weren't there telling Mary to push, right? They're like, you brought frankincense, you get to cut the cord, right? They didn't do, that's not how it worked, right? They actually visited Jesus at a home, and so um, historians and, and theologians say that Jesus might have been like one to two years old when the wise men came, which as I'm reading this passage, I've never, up until this point, have never had a whole lot of interaction with a toddler. And so as I'm reading this, I'm like, these men of influence, these men of power, these men of wealth, right, these three wise men are coming to worship a toddler, Now, my son is 16 months old. He's in full-blown toddler mode. Um, I absolutely love him to death. He's got the cutest little smile, and I'm like, give me a hug, gives me a hug, give me a kiss, gives me a kiss. Um, uh, He also uh, poops his pants. Um, He wakes up at 6 a.m. I will tell him no, and he's like kind of crying, but still reaching for the thing he shouldn't touch right right after I swatted his hand. Like, it's a mess. And I'm thinking, what in the world are these three, what is there about a toddler Go out and stand in front of the nursery for five minutes and look and see if there is anything that you're like, that child is worthy of my worship, right? No, they're screaming, they're crying, they're selfish, they're pulling each other's hair out, they're grabbing toys. There is nothing in a toddler that is worthy of worship. But as I'm reading this, these wise men are coming to worship Jesus, which means there's got to be something undeniable. Even at such a young age, there's got to be something undeniable about Jesus, because this is before he's fed the 5,000. This is before he's already hooked a wedding party up with more wine. This is before he's walked on water. This is before he's risen from the dead. This is before he's healed a blind man, before he's healed um, the deaf, before he's done anything. These guys are coming to worship Jesus. And so this morning we're saying that now, that right now, It's the most wonderful time to worship, not because of what he has done, but simply for who he is. I know that some of you guys are are dreading this Christmas season. Some of you guys are looking around and realizing that there is going to be one less person at your home and it's going to be a tough season. Some of you guys are celebrating this season because a new life has entered. Shout out Silas and Avery and Travis and Ashley, right, who just welcomed newborns into the world. Um, And some of you guys might be somewhere in between. But no matter where you fall on this spectrum of, of, of celebration or grieving, that now is the most wonderful time to worship. And so I'm going to start by telling this, and it's the super, like it's super easy, but, it, but it's that we, we worship in the good times. We worship in the good times. This one's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because I think we can all look at times in our life 
where things have been going great, right? God's answering our prayers. God's forgiven us. God's given us a second chance. He saved us. Things are fantastic. We got a raise. We got a new job. And in these moments, it's easy to worship God, right? If you're um, a sports fan, if you like Oklahoma State, you know that it's kind of been difficult to be really excited about them in the past because you're like, they're going to drop like three or four games this year, whatever. And this year, it's like, oh, okay, there's a chance. And then inevitably, they let you down. But it's like, it was fun to, to get excited when your team is doing well. And it's easy to worship when things are going well. And this is a, unlike the wise men because the wise men came to worship, just worship Jesus. He wasn't offering anything in return. It's just who he was. This is us worshiping God for what he's done. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with worshiping God for what he's done. But we're a little quicker to recognize him for who he is when things are going well. Am I right? It's like, yeah, it's like we'll come into church, raise our hands. Yeah, let's go. I'm ready to sing. I'm ready to dance. I'm ready to listen. Whatever, because God has been good. Well, after Jesus was crucified, he had a disciple named Thomas. And Thomas was a little hesitant to accept the news that Jesus had been resurrected. He said, unless I see with my own eyeballs his hands and his feet, um, and unless I touch him, I'm not going to believe that, uh, that it's true. And so in John chapter 20, verses 28 and 29, um, after Thomas sees Jesus, after he touches him, after he hears his voice in verse 28, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, I want to make something very clear. Jesus doesn't reject Thomas. He's not like, hey, welcome to the show. You like Fairweather fan. Congratulations. Nice of you to join us. No, he like, he's, he's like, hey, yeah, you believe me because you see me. But he gives like this special blessing to people who are going to believe without seeing because he realizes that there's a time coming that's pretty soon where people aren't going to have the luxury of seeing him. They're not going to have the luxury of touching him. They're not going to have the luxury of hearing his voice, of following him along in the sand. They're not going to have the luxury of that. And he says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And so absolutely, we worship God in the good times. But if we're going to follow Christ, that means that we have to also worship him in the dark times. And I feel like this one is a little hit or miss. Just from my experience, personally, my experience, seeing people go through different tragedies, that whenever you're experiencing a difficult time, whenever you're going through a rough part of your life, that I don't feel like there's a whole lot of middle ground, that you either draw close to God or you pull away from him. And maybe you've seen it with your own eyes that people who don't even necessarily claim to follow God when they're going through something, they ask you to pray for them. They start praying. It's like, okay, so, so it, almost as a last resort, you're trying to draw close to God, right? That there's not a whole lot of middle ground. In dark times, you either draw towards him or you pull away from him. But no matter what, we still have to learn to worship in those moments. There's a story in Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 22 through 25 says this as a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stri stripped and beaten with wooden rods they were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape so the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks now these guys had just been beaten within like an inch of their life 
They were bloodied. They were exhausted. Um, and they didn't do anything wrong, right? What they did was they cast a demon out of a girl, and that girl was, was making money for people, and they were upset. And so um, they, they caused a riot, and, and Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in jail. And they were thrown in, like, the innermost dungeon, and they weren't there just to chill. Like, they were um, immobilized. They had their hands and their feet clamped so they couldn't move. It's a pretty dark time. Like, they're not, like, what, like, what, in the, what is going, they're not complaining. They're just, what, what, why am I here? We continue to worship in the dark because God is still God, right? That even in those terrible moments, those moments that have you, have you completely lost, God is still God and our situations and our surroundings have not kicked him off of the throne. And when you feel lost, when you're in the darkness, the best place you can find yourself is at the feet of Jesus, I don't know how many times you've woken up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom or whatever, and if you're like me, you just kick your shoes off and just kick them in the floor, and you always have great intentions that you're going to put them in your closet, and eventually you've got like 97 pair of shoes laying all over the floor. It's like a minefield, and so I get up in the middle of the night, and I'm kind of groggy, and I'm like trying not to roll my ankle from stepping on a shoe or stubbing my toe. It's a disaster, right? It's, it's a nightmare. A lot of times when we're in dark, when we're in a rough point, when, when things are going bad, we kind of fumble and stumble around just trying to figure out what's next. Instead of finding our play, ourselves at the one place that we need to be, at the feet of Jesus. Because the safest and surest thing that you can do in those dark moments is make sure that your heart is in that posture of worship. That you're on your knees before him and saying, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening but I do know that you're still God. As we're reading on in that passage in, in Acts, verse 25 says, Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The Bible doesn't tell us what was going through those prisoners' minds, just that they were listening to what Paul and Silas were doing. I don't know how they were listening, right? If I was in that jail, I might have been like, hey guys, can you keep it down? I don't get a whole lot of like bright spots in jail when I'm chained up, but at least maybe finding some sleep is, is the one thing I'm looking at. And it's midnight and these psychopaths in the, in the jail next to me are singing and praying, man, we just want to go to sleep. And then something starts happening where the ground starts shaking and the earth starts shaking and the chains of the prisoners fall off. I might be changing my tune a little bit after hearing that. I might be like, maybe there's something to this name of Jesus that they're singing about. Maybe there's something powerful about that name. Some of the most powerful and genuine and sincere moments that I've witnessed are when people are going through absolute tragedy. And, and the, the thing that they say is, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm still going to trust God. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I... Like, I don't have, what else am I going to do except trust God? Trust that God is still good and he is still in control. Where they, where they do away with the charade, they do away with the act of, yeah, everything's great, yep, yep, yep. But it's just like, this, this part is awful and I'm not going to deny that it's terrible and I don't want to be here, but I'm still trusting that God is good. I'm still at the feet of Jesus no matter what. Man, your worship in those dark times has the power and the ability to affect other people. Your worship in those dark and rough times is the safest and surest place to be. 
Your worship in those dark times is you confessing that God is still in control no matter what you're going through. It's not easy. No one said it was going to be easy. But it's the safest place that you can be in those moments. So we worship in the dark. We worship in the good. And this one might be one of the most difficult of them all. We worship in the quiet times. We worship in those quiet times. Have you guys ever had a moment where nothing's really wrong, right? Things, if someone were to ask you, how are you doing? It's like, I'm good. Family's good. I'm good. Life's, you know, no, no real problems. Things are going well. But for whatever reason, whenever you pray, it just feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and nothing's happening. Whenever you read the Bible, nothing's sticking out. Whenever you hear that song, you're not getting the goosebumps that you used to get. And you're just like, what is, is happening in these moments? My life is good. But you pray and you get nothing in response. And finally, you're just like, God, just strike me blind or something. Let me know that you're listening. And all you get in response is just silence. Nothing. One of my favorite stories in the Bible revolves around the prophet Elijah. Um, and it's the whole series of events that leads up to this moment because Elijah had just been part of this incredible move of God of showing the power of God to this nation and to these false prophets. And um, then he kills a bunch of guys and it's awesome, right? But uh, that's, you're like, what? What's wrong with you, Michael? I don't know. Um, a lot. But he goes through this awesome moment. He's on the mountaintop celebrating, you know, and, and showing people the power of God. But he ticks off the wrong people. And, and he gets his life threatened, and the queen says, if, I'm, if you're not dead by this time tomorrow, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one. Like, if, if you're not dead, then I should be dead. So I'm coming after you, Elijah. Elijah runs. He hides. He prays that God would just take his life. He goes from a mountaintop to this extreme pit, just wanting to die. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we read this story, picking up in verse 9. It says, But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And Elijah stood there, and the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This passage is so interesting to me for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first reason is this, is because... Um, God talks to Elijah. He's like, what are you doing here? Elijah answers. God's like, go stand on the mouth of the cave. And he experiences all these like phenomenons and doesn't hear anything from it. Until there's this gentle whisper. And Elijah realizes that God is in that moment. And the voice repeats the same question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gives him the same response. And this time, God responds. He didn't respond in the fire or the earthquake or the wind. He responded in the quiet. This passage is super interesting to me as well because where Elijah is standing is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai has a lot of historical references and a lot of uh, significance in the Old Testament. Mount Sinai was where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. 
Mount Sinai was where God revealed himself to the Israelites. And what I find really, really interesting is that when God revealed himself to the Israelites years and years and years before, he did so on the same mountain that Elijah's standing on. He revealed himself to the Israelites in a storm, in an earthquake, and in fire. The same three things that we see Elijah experience, God had showed up in a real and powerful way in the past. The Israelites were like, oh, dang, what's going on? Like, that's God. Uh-oh, right? We better get, our, better get our act together. But this time, when Elijah's on the same mountain where God had appeared before, when Elijah's in the midst of some of the same phenomenon where God had appeared before, God's not in any of those. God's in something completely different. You can put on that same song. You can pray that same prayer. You can do all these same things in, 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 in hopes to recreate some magic where you've experienced God close. You know, it's like, I'm going to go out and spend a few hours journaling and, and listening to the worship music and, and, and praying and reading my Bible, and you get nothing. And you're like, I don't understand. I've done that before. Like, and it's worked, and I've, I felt God speak to me, and I felt God move, and I felt him close, and you do it again, and it's just like, I'm just sitting out here, just like wasting my time. What is going on? That you can do what you've always done, be in the same place you've always been, and still not hear anything from God. Elijah was on the same mountain where God had appeared, experienced the same things that God had done in the past, and God wasn't in any of them. But what was God in? He was in the quiet. God was in the quiet. And we have to start to understand that, that even when we don't have the emotions that we once had, when we don't feel God close, when we feel like he's disconnected, we have to understand that sometimes our feelings aren't always accurate. And that just because we don't feel God close and all warm and cozy and fuzzy inside doesn't mean he's not there. Is God in the fire? Absolutely. Is he in the storm? Is, absolutely. Is he in the earthquake? Absolutely. Is he in those powerful moments of, 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 of songs? Absolutely. Is he, is he in his word? Absolutely. But is he in the silence? Man, every long and drawn out second of it he is. And so many times we rely on our feelings to guide us. And our feelings are, are a great gauge, but they're a terrible guide. And sometimes they guide us in the wrong direction. Just because we don't feel God close doesn't mean that he's not, not there. There's this encounter that Jesus has with this woman, and Jesus is talking with her in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And he says this, But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is a spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth. When you can't hear God's voice, when you feel like your prayers aren't being answered, when you feel like it's just stale and dull, you have to realize that worship isn't just some emotional exercise that we go through. That it's where your, your head and your heart connect. And you understand who God is. You understand who God is when those moments where you feel him close, and you understand who God is when you can't feel him at all. And I want you to hear what John Piper said, which I thought was a great explanation of this. He says, worship must be vital and real in the hearts, and worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full or half full of artificial admirers. 
On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from the people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. If we're going to worship God at all times, if we're going to have this constant state where our heart is in this posture of worship, where we are constantly in submission um, to God, then, then what it boils down to is our view of God. Do we think God's in control? Do we think God is good? Or do we think he's just there to like bail us out when we're in trouble? Right, if we're gonna worship him at all times, then we've gotta understand that at all times, he's worthy of our honor, he's worthy of our respect, he's worthy of our worship. Luke chapter nine, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and he asks them a question in Luke chapter nine, verse 18. He says, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. And only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets, um, one of the ancient prophets risen from the dead. We are um, 20 days away from Christmas. How many of you guys are off on Christmas? Anyone have to work on Christmas? Yes, raise your hand if you're off work on Christmas. Raise your hand. Sorry. How many of you guys have to work on Christmas? people okay so here's why I asked that because you're like yes kind of no I don't know um, I would say that most everyone in America has some idea of who Jesus is why because we celebrate Christmas and most everyone gets that day off now most people might give you a response and some of those responses might be crazy they might just think he's some mythological guy from the past and we're just keeping up with tradition they might think we celebrate Christmas um, because, you know, a, a guy in history did something really cool, kind of like we celebrate Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day, right? It's like, hey, we celebrate, so, like, we get Christmas off because some guy did something at some point. Um, maybe they think we celebrate it like we do Memorial Day or President's Day or Labor Day or whatever. They don't really know all the details. All they know is they don't have to work, and so they're like, thanks, Jesus, for the day off, right? Uh, they give a response, but like the response that Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that I am? Those people had a response. Was it the correct response? No, but they had a response. Most people we would ask would probably have a response of who Jesus is. Is it the right one? I don't know. It depends who you ask. They'd probably have an answer, though. But Jesus takes it from my generic, generic general question and makes it really personal in the next verse. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. When Peter uses the word Messiah, it has some really big, um, important like, connotations here. Right? He's saying that you are the promised king. You're the deliverer that we've been waiting for. Right? We've been reading the Old Testament. We've been reading the Torah and the prophets and all of this. And, and I believe that you're that guy that they've been talking about. Some translations say that Peter uh, says you're the Christ of God. Matthew records it as Peter responding, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Whatever translation or account you want to read, Peter is proclaiming the same thing, that you are the guy. You are the one that we've been waiting for. Peter in that moment recognizes what the wise men recognized 30 years before. That whether he, he did all these miracles or not, that he is still worthy of their worship that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And your circumstances and your situations don't change who Jesus is. It might change your view of him, but guess what? That's where you have to remember. You have to connect the heart and the head and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, what I'm feeling may not be an accurate representation of who Jesus is, right? That your situations have not kicked him off the throne. Um, and when we feel like God is, is speaking clearly to us or our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, whether we feel like um, he, he's directing our steps or our life is a mess, whether we're mourning the loss of a loved one or celebrating a new life, um, whether whatever it may be, that he is still worthy of our worship. And that worship may be with hands lifted high in celebration. It might be with our face to the ground. It might be with shouts of praise or in silent reflection, right? But whatever it is, we're saying that it's the most wonderful time to worship him. Why? Not because it's Christmas, because of who he is. Man, Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jeremiah 10.6, Lord, there is no one like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Psalm 95, 6 and 7, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over the flock under his care. There is no one like him. No matter where you are today, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're dealing with, that he is still worthy of our worship. He is still worthy of us being in a position of saying, you are in charge. You are holy. You need to be honored. He is still in that position. And some of us in here today, we probably treated like God's a genie in a bottle, right? We pray the right prayer. We do the right things and he answers our prayer. And we're like, hooray, yay. We'll post about it on Facebook or social media and, and we'll tell people about all the cool things God has done for us. Um, we'll come to church and we're ready to listen. We're ready to praise, ready to raise our hands, do all these things. But the moment we don't get what we want, we abandon ship and we start looking for something else. Like, ooh, okay, what's next? What can I do? All right, that, that one didn't turn out how I wanted it, so what am I gonna do now? Maybe you've raised your hand at one point and you prayed a prayer at one point and you think you're set. Hey, cool, I did that at one time in my life, so it's all good. But your life right now, very little to anything you do honors God. It's more of a relationship out of convenience instead of one out of commitment. You're a fan of him, sure, absolutely, yeah. If he plays at the BOK Center, I'll be there, be on the front row cheering him on. Let's go, Jesus. Oh, I gotta drive to like Houston? Nah, that's too far, I'm not gonna do that. All right, we're a fan of Jesus, but we're not a follower. Is your life lived in constant worship? So I go back to Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. By changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Man, is our life a living sacrifice? Is it acceptable when God looks at it? Has God transformed us into a new person? Do you know where that transformation happens? It happens at the feet of Jesus. It's not by you just, oh man, I hope I can stop cussing less. I hope I can, you know, be a little bit more ethical on my business deals. Man, I hope I can treat my family. No, 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 no. It's, it's at the feet of Jesus where that transformation happens. Is your life lived in a constant, living, active, ongoing state of worship? 
where you're saying, hey, you're in charge. You're in charge and I'm following you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, God's working on someone in here this morning. You've been feeling God convicting you and pulling you and, and, and drawing you back to him. And today is the day where you say, you know what? Today's the day where I need to fall down and worship. Today's the day where I need to put him in authority over me. Today's the day where I need to follow him. No more of this fumbling your way through life, but simply finding yourself at the feet of Jesus. Today might be the day where you need to make that declaration that Thomas made, my Lord and my God, putting him at the place of authority because he's the only one that's worthy of it. And if you're in here today and God is moving in you, God's working on you, and you need to come back to him, there is salvation found in no one else but him. I'm going to count to three. And if you know that's you, man, can I tell you stop fighting? Stop fighting and simply fall down. On the count of three, if that's you, raise your hand. One, two, three. Is there anyone here say that's me? Yeah, I see your hand. Thank you. Anyone else in here say, yeah, say, I, I need to fall down and worship. I need to put him at the place where he belongs, at the center of it all. Anyone else? If you're online, you can respond. But if you're in this place and you raise your hand, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I need you. And I'm sorry for, not, for doing things my own way. Today I ask that you would forgive me. And that you would change me. Today I fall down at your feet. And put you in your rightful place. Place of authority. Because you're the only one who deserves it. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.